Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we continue our year-long study from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in a series we're calling Christian in a Good Way. This week, Pastor Tierra brings us a message on trust. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tierra. This morning, if you were here last week, um, you know that we, um, we've been in kind of a, a series over the course of the last several weeks, we're calling it, or yeah, several weeks, several months, it's our Matthew series, we're spending the year kind of camping out in the book of Matthew, kind of moving through every single moment, every single story in the book of Matthew, uh, and then we're also kind of in what we're, what I, do we want to call it a micro-series, uh, we're in a micro-series uh, called Christian in a Good Way. Uh, We're looking at what it means to be Christian in a good way, uh, who it is that God calls us to be, who is it that Jesus is inviting us to be. Uh, And this is kind of like Inception, but there's like a micro-series in the micro-series. And we're kind of building off of a little bit of, or a lot of bit of what um, Reverend Tim started last week, um, helping us to make some really helpful, I think, distinctions, giving us a really good framework for how we see the world. Uh, Because as it turns out, how we see the world matters. And so when we looked at a passage last week, uh, when Jesus Jesus says, do not store uh, your treasures um, where they can, they can rust or be um, eaten by vermin. Um, some of you remember the drawing of the vermin. Um, so we, we looked at that passage and we noticed that there's this, little, there's this little theme of trust that emerges in that passage that kind of carries through into the text for this week. Um, so quick review. Um, we looked at the difference between a good eye and a bad eye. A good eye, um, ayin tova, ayin is your eye in Hebrew. Tova means good in Hebrew, so your good eye, uh, seeing the world with a good eye, um, and also seeing the world with a bad eye. And ayin ra, um, ayin I ra means bad or evil in the Hebrew. Uh, your eye determines how you not just see the world, but also how you respond to the world. And so what we talked about last week is the fact that those who see the world with a good eye, with an ayin tova, respond with generosity. People with a good eye are the kinds of people who ask, how can I make bigger corners so that I can share with others? And then there's those who see the world with a bad eye, an ayin ra, um, and they respond with stinginess. These are the people who ask questions like, how can I make bigger barns so that I can store all the things that I have What it comes down to, and what we discovered last week, is that the primary distinction between these two is this little word called trust. This little word called trust. And so I wanna pick up there for today because I think this is precisely what Jesus is saying as we continue to move through um, the passages. And so um, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter six, uh, picking up in verse 25, um, and we're gonna read into Matthew chapter seven, um, verse 11, but not all at one time. Uh, So so Jesus begins in Matthew chapter six, and he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious um, about, your life and about all these other things, do not be anxious, which, if we're honest, feels a bit easier said than done, right? Like, especially if, I don't know, maybe you're something like the son of God, like, it seems a little bit easier said than done to not be anxious. Um, I know a number of people, my generation, poor millennials, I think we're, we're pretty anxious right now. Um, I, <laughs> I wonder sometimes if 
um, as we're thinking, can we go to the next slide? As we're thinking about this particular season and like all the seasons that have come before this, like what in the world? Like, it's a lot to react to. Uh, and then there are my Gen X friends who are like, we've been training for this since we were little kids, like hiding in the hallway with like planning for our nuclear, our nuclear bomb attacks. Um, go to the next slide. Um, so global crises are, are no stranger to a number of us. And yet at the same time, they're in rapid succession, it seems like. And it's a lot to react to. And so when you hear the words of Jesus, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious. I know, I forgot your generation was the first ones with Pop-Tarts. Oh, you're not an Xer? Oh. Okay, Jared. <laughs> It's either that or boomer. It's one or the other. <laughs> so there seems to be a lot of anxiety in our world right now. <laughs> and on top of that, I think some of us have temperaments that are naturally maybe given to anxiety. Um, some of us have jobs maybe that cause a lot of anxiety. Um, some of us are, are, are in seasons of life where there's just a lot of anxiety, whether it's because you're raising a young family or, or maybe you're in a season where you're facing and or dealing with a diagnosis. Um, and then for some people, for some people, di- like anxiety is not any of those things. It's not just a temperament. It's not just like a job or like a situation or a season of life. Anxiety is an actual disorder. Like it's a, it's a diagnosis. Um, but still, no matter which of these is you, my guess is that in the moment when fear and anxiety and worry is like crashing down on you, scrambling the thoughts in your mind, when it feels like the world is like literally closing in on you, to hear the Son of God say, just don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Just don't worry about it. If we're honest, like if we can be honest about the questions that we bring to the text, we might say, really, Jesus, just Don't, just don't be anxious. Like what exactly is Jesus saying in this text? What is he saying to our fears and our worries? And is it more substantive than just simply don't worry about it? Don't worry about it. Those are the questions that we're bringing into our text this morning. And so as we continue reading through Matthew chapter six, uh, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon, the wealthiest king in all of Israel's history, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Is Jesus doing something more substantive than just simply telling us not to worry? Potentially. Um, And I think one of the words that helps us to understand that is this word that Jesus uses, pagan. Uh, Jesus uses the word pagan in our text, um, and for the pagans run after all of these things. Now, some of you might have in your text, it says Gentiles, but um, one of the things that you might have noticed as we've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is making a comparison between two groups of people um, and the people who follow after him or his disciples. One of the groups we've covered quite well, uh, what 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 is the group that we've covered well that Jesus tells us not to be like. What was it? 
Sure. I think the Pharisees get a bad rap, but sure. Pharisees, but not not Pharisees. What's another group? Broadly starts with an H. Hypocrites. There you go. Uh, So Jesus tells us not to be like the hypocrites, but along the way, he also makes a comparison to another group. He tells us not to be like the pagans. Three times in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Uh, But then in Matthew chapter 6, a few weeks ago, we covered, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, and when you pray, um, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like who? Pagans. Uh, For they think they will be heard because of their many words. And then now, in today's text, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, for the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Uh, So what is it that the pagans are running after? Uh, Jesus, in this text, highlights food, drink, clothing. Uh, If you're paying attention, you realize these are like the basic necessities of life. Uh, They are at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, right up above, right underneath, um, if we can go to the next slide, right underneath um, safety and security, like physical safety and security. Um, So Jesus is telling them to, that the pagans run after these things, the basic provisions of life, the staples of life. Now, this is the stuff that's at the very, very bottom of the list. It's like the basic level of provision that like most of us, we rally to make sure other people have these kinds of things just instinctively because we know how important they are. And yet, Jesus is saying that the pagans, they don't just, they, they don't just run after these things. They anxiously scurry after these things. So a word on what it means to be a pagan The word that Jesus uses is ethne. Uh, If we can go back, yeah. Uh, The word that Jesus uses is ethne. Uh, It's uh, related to another word, ethnos. Um, We use it as the word ethnic. Uh, Ethnic is in like that section at Meyer where you get like ramen and like sriracha and like stroopwafels. Like that's ethnic, right? So it means like nations or like people. Um, And you might say that in this context, given where Jesus is, he's saying something like, The nations run after these things. The people run after these things. The Romans, the Romans run after these things. Um, Jesus is critiquing the culture of the Romans here. Um, And in fact, um, St. Augustine picks up on this a few few centuries later, uh, all the way up in the fifth century, very beginning of the century. He writes a book called The City of God. Um, It's one of my favorite books. It's easily 800 pages. I've not read the whole thing. Um, It's a really, really great book. Um, But in it, um, Augustine, the reason I haven't read the whole thing is not because it's not worth it. It's because at times he rambles for like dozens of pages about things like what age will we be when we're in heaven and do girls get to be girls in heaven? Like it's (laughs) hilarious. But anyway, uh, he writes this book for a couple of reasons. uh, And one of them is because, um, so if you remember your world history, you'll remember um, that Rome sacked the Greeks, um, who then, who before them sacked the Persians, uh, who sacked the Babylonians, who sacked the Assyrians, and all of them kind of subjugate Israel in some way or other over the course of, of centuries. But around 410 AD, um, the moment of reckoning comes, Rome gets sacked. Anybody remember by who? No one in first service remembered either. Uh, Visigoths, yeah. Uh, Visigoths are sometimes they're called the barbarians. Uh, they're from the, from northern Europe, and so they sack Rome. 
And um, one of the reasons that Augustine writes City of God is because essentially people are starting to ask questions about Christians and Christianity and the church uh, because 100 years before Rome is sacked by the Visigoths, they convert it to what? Christianity. Yeah, Edict of Milan, um, Emperor Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the empire, and there are still some people who are not happy about that. And so when they get sacked by the Visigoths, people basically say, like, oh, yeah, this is the Christian's fault. Like, had we, like, had we been able to just keep worshiping our gods, like, this never would have happened. Our, our old gods would have protected us. And so Augustine writes City of God to basically as, like, a no, that's not why we got sacked. That's not why Rome fell. Uh, but the second reason Augustine writes City of God is because he's actually writing to the church. Because if you're the church, after the fall of Rome, after the fall of the empire that basically became your saving grace in the middle of persecution, like relentless persecution that almost stamped out the church, you're thinking, well, the people who protected us are gone. What's going to happen to us? People are terrified that something's going to happen to the church. And so Augustine writes City of God to basically shore up the church and say, Rome falling is not the church falling. It is not the end of the Christian faith. You just wait and see. And so anyway, as he's writing this book, he starts to reflect on the Roman Empire in its heyday. He's like looking at all these sources, looking at all these texts, uh, and he essentially kind of comes to this conclusion. He says, you know, even in Rome's most victorious moments and all the militaristic victories and all the wealth and like all the innovations and the roads and, and like all the territory that stretched on seemingly forever and the conquest after conquest and victory after victory, even in all of that, we're never happy. Like the empire was never happy. It was never satisfied. It was never content. Um, it was never happy. And why? Because they always lived under the fear that the whole thing, the whole thing could be shattered like that, like in a complete instant, always wondering when the next young, ambitious nation coming along with nothing but the hunger in their bellies to lose and would completely over, overrun everything that they'd built. And so Augustine uses this poignant metaphor that's on the screen here. He says that their triumph, as masterful as it was for centuries, was always, um, it always had the, the fragile brilliance of glass. Like, it was so fragile. It was so um, tender. It could, like, break in a moment. Uh, and it's the knowledge of that. It's the knowledge of just how fragile it was um, that actually like, stirred unbelievable anxiety within the empire. This is the, this is the anxiety that drives the pagans, Augustine says. And in fact, we see this in the scriptures too. And does anyone remember the first nation to oppress Israel? What was it? Yeah, Egypt. Uh, so Egypt was the first nation to oppress Israel. I won't ask you to say if you remember how because I didn't remember either until we were all sitting in the office earlier this week, uh, this past week, talking about this particular sermon text. And one of the pastors from Fairhaven, Jeremy Cruz, um, reminded us of Exodus 1. And in Exodus chapter 1, we find um, this is after um, like Joseph's generation has like passed on. This is after the first pharaoh, like the pharaoh that Joseph served passes on. Uh, and God's people are continuing to grow in Egypt. Uh, and eventually the new king, the new king of Egypt uh, is probably hyper aware of just how fragile that whole empire is. And so he's looking around one day and he sees this foreign nation in his nation and they're huge. And they just keep growing. And then at some point, he's in a staff meeting on a Monday morning, and he just kind of plays this weird what-if game. Like, what if they keep growing? 
And then what if like a war breaks out? And what if, what if when the war breaks out, they join our enemies? Because obviously they don't like us, and so they're not loyal to us, and so they're going to join our enemies. And, and what if after they join our enemies, they fight against us? And what if after they fight against us, they defeat us, and then they leave, and they destroy our economy as they go? No provocation, no tanks on the border, no insurrection in the city center, no nothing. Just literally, what if game gets played in his head, and he flips out, and that is how... That is how the Israelites become the slaves of the, of, of the Egyptians. So the question has to become at that point, like how exactly, or rather maybe why, like why exactly do we do this? Why exactly do the nations do this? Um, I think that gets at what Jesus actually means by pagan. That it's not just simply the nations. It's not just different people groups. Um, it's not just simply Gentiles. But um, another way to describe what a pagan is is an unbeliever but not in the way that you might think. Um, what is meant by that is those who do not believe in Yahweh, but not in the way that you might think. Remember, Jesus is comparing his disciples to the pagans, but he also says to his disciples, oh, you of little faith. Uh, I think sometimes we get lost on this word, uh, believer or faith. Uh, one, they're all the same word, like they're both the same word. Uh, I will not have you pronounce the word on the screen, if we can go to the next slide. Uh, I can't even pronounce it. It's just way too many syllables. <laughs> but, uh, but when Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, he means little or insufficient faith. Uh, but the word pistoi uh, or pistoi uh, comes from the root uh, pistuo or the verb pistuo. Uh, it means to have faith in. Um, it means to, uh, to believe. Um, and yet, sometimes when we see faith, we think like really spiritual. Like we think like like super mystical experiences. And when we think believe, we think very intellectual. Like we think what we, what we believe with our minds or what we subscribe to, like we think position statements. Um, and those get at a part of what, what Jesus is getting at here, um, part of what this word means. And yet they miss just by like a little tiny hair because ultimately uh, maybe a better way to describe uh, pistuo is the word trust, which is a really dynamic mix of both faith, you know, like spiritually, like what do we worship, but also belief, you know, what do we think, like how do we love God with our minds, but also trust, like how do we tangibly with everything trust, trust someone, um, or to entrust ourselves to someone with full confidence. It's kind of hard to describe with words, um, probably a lot better, better said when we, or notice when we realize we don't have it or we do have it. Uh, I liken it to, uh, all of us went to Inside Moves, not all of us, a few of us went to Inside Moves a few weeks ago. Uh, Inside Moves is a climbing gym here in Myron Center, a uh, really fun place. Uh, this was after we'd gone to Terra Firma, which is a bouldering gym in um, the city of GR. Now, the difference between bouldering and like top rope climbing um, is one, the mat is like a lot thinner uh, <laughs> in, a, in a rock climbing gym. Uh, but also, you don't have ropes and harnesses when you go bouldering. It's just you and the wall and like a really thick mat. Uh, we invited the whole church, but not many of you showed up to come with us. I'm not sure why that was. But <laughs> so, nonetheless, we went um, bouldering um, and then eventually we went um, climbing. Um, and as we were climbing at Inside moves, um, we they basically like give you this whole tutorial where they're like kind of clicking you in and like attaching you to other people, um, and then a person who works there coaches you through your first few climbs to make sure that you understand the technique so that you don't 
hurt someone. They also make you sign a waiver. Um, they make sure you sign a waiver. <laughs> so at one point, um, I am connected to Molly Gordsma. I, I know she's here. I just don't know where she's sitting at. There you are. Uh, and so I am her belayer, or I'm going to just say I'm her spotter. Um, and so I practice spotting her as she climbs up a route, um, and she climbs up a couple of times. I think I finally got all the details together. And then we swap, and I am climbing up the same route she took, and she's spotting me. Well, at some point, as I'm making my way up the wall, um, my finger, I have terrible grip strength. I can't open anything. But um, my fingers, like, slip off these, like, these, like, grips. Like, you see those pink ones? Those are huge. Mine was, like, tiny, like, really tiny. So my fingers must have gotten too sweaty. Maybe I didn't have enough chalk or something. And I literally slip, my hands slip off the wall. Um, and then I, like, fall off the wall. Um, and I don't know if it was Molly screaming or maybe I was screaming or, like, everyone was screaming. <laughs> <laughs> they were screaming. <laughs> and sure enough, Molly, God bless you, like she, she caught me, pulled all the slack out of the rope, like the person who was next to her was coaching her well. Um, and then I'm like literally like suspended in the air and everybody's catching their breath. And then eventually she kind of keeps like lowering me to the ground so that I don't hit that very, very, very tiny mat very hard. Um, so trust is kind of like that. <laughs> trust is kind of like I am entrusting my safety to you. I am entrusting myself to you. I am putting confidence in you that even if something were to happen, you would keep me from hitting the ground too hard. Um, That, I think, is what trust means. Um, And you know when you don't have it, because if you don't trust someone, you're probably not going to let them spot you as you climb 34 feet in the air or higher. And if you, even if you do let them spot you, you're probably going to be checking over your shoulder like every 30 seconds, wondering if they're paying attention, wondering if they've really got you. And even if you're facing the wall, and even if you're climbing still, if you don't trust someone, even if you're not looking over your shoulder at them, you're probably terrified thinking that if something happens, they're not going to have your back. What Jesus reminds us of in this passage is that to believe in a God who doesn't care, to believe in a God who doesn't actively preserve his creation, to believe in a God who isn't trustworthy with even the basics of our lives, to believe in a God who only blesses us at the expense of others, to believe in a God who forces us to eliminate others, people, nations, groups, for the sake of our own survival, is not to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a different God altogether. That is the primary difference between a pagan and a follower of Jesus. Trust. So what does Jesus say to our anxiety? What does Jesus say to our fear? In the very least, one of the things that he is saying is that it's not the fear that's the problem. It's our capacity to trust. And you can actually hold fear and trust simultaneously. And so can God. But then seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus tells his disciples, do not judge or you too will be judged for for in the way that you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. And if you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
So Jesus says to his disciples that they should not stand over others in judgment. Uh, Jesus uses this uh, word krino, which we went over a couple of weeks ago. It means to judge or to separate. Uh, the idea that you get is that you're standing at a distance. Uh, you're standing at a distance um, only this time. You're standing at a distance to criticize a person or to criticize their actions, maybe even going so far as to not just stand at a distance from them, but to condemn them. Um, and Jesus tells us that we are not to do that, um, that we are not to do that. And yet, if we're honest, we live in a cultural context that almost like intuitively forms us to do that. Like we almost do it intuitively um, thanks to um, social media, which can be a gift, but can also be a pretty bad tool um, in this instance, um, not just for bullying, but also for the ways that we might use it to shame people. Um, I think we've become increasingly merciless in the last few years. Um, and yet, the picture that, the picture that we get of, of Jesus, the picture that we get of, of our triune God in the scriptures is a picture of a God who um, somehow manages to hold mercy and justice together. Like God is both just and merciful, which means that he's just, people are accountable for their actions, but he's also merciful, which means God doesn't vent his full anger. God, God actually holds back. Uh, to be merciful is not to give someone what they deserve. Uh, it's to actually hold back um, all the vengeance and all the wrath that you might otherwise desire to uh, demonstrate or to show to that person. Um, somehow God does both of those. Um, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, I think sometimes people make this into an eschatological, like, end of time kind of, like, like judgment, like, warning. Like, like, God the Father is going to be sitting there with, like, rulers, and he's going to be like, oh, yeah, like, you know what? This is the ruler that Todd used to judge others, so Todd, I'm going to use this ruler to judge you. Um, I actually think it's actually more like... Um, I think it's more like a warning about what happens as a natural consequence of being unmerciful, like today. That like if we're unmerciful today, we create a culture together that is what? Unmerciful. And in an unmerciful culture, the moment anyone fails or falters or makes a mistake or, or does something terrible that they shouldn't do, a merciful, an unmerciful culture will do what? Eat you alive every single time. I didn't put stats on the screen for this, but I, I was kind of doing some Google research a couple of weeks ago, and uh, new studies are revealing that everyone, left, right, center, doesn't matter, everyone is terrified of what we're doing right now. Everyone. Because everyone recognizes that a culture that is unmerciful is not the kind of culture that you can make mistakes in. You can't be authentic in a culture that is unmerciful. You can't grow in a culture that is unmerciful, um, which might be the reason that Jesus tells us not to judge others. Because it becomes a, um, one, because it becomes a distraction from dealing with our own stuff. Um, it keeps us from dealing with the planks in our own eyes. But also because be, like this, this, the, the merciless way of dealing with others is simply not the way of Jesus is not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way of the kingdom. Um, Jesus is describing himself, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It seems that the way of Jesus is not the way of unmercifulness, but rather to rescue someone from the misery of their own making. 
That's what we see in the person that is Jesus Christ. And I think we know this in theory. I think we know this in theory, but I don't know that we always trust that. Um, Now, in truth, I don't know what our culture should or could whatever do with that. Um, But I do know that for people who call themselves followers of Christ, um, (laughs) if we can be anything other than completely overwhelmed and overjoyed by the mercy of God, that we ourselves have experienced that like has been poured out on us. Like I, I liken it to the, the the story of the prodigal son who like he comes home covered in dirt and grime and I mean potentially pig feces because he's been living in a pig pen away from home and he finally comes home to his father. This beautiful story in Luke 15, finally comes home to his father, and his father doesn't turn up his nose at him. Um, he he doesn't literally stuff his nose so that he can't smell his son. Um, he throws a robe around him as he hugs him. As he hugs him. Um, now Assume that Jesus is telling us a little bit about what the Father is like in this instance. And so assume that the Father is God. Assume that what the Father sees when he looks at that boy is not just all the past wrongs, but also maybe he's standing outside of time and seeing everything. Everything. The stuff that even the people who live with you don't see. Both past and future. And what does he do with it? Does he have a family meeting and like run down the list of all the ways that we're gonna screw up over the course of our lives even after we've said yes to Jesus? No. What does he do? Throws a party. He kills the fatted calf. Like he, I mean, he throws a party and invites the neighbors to celebrate, to celebrate because the one thing that matters is that we've come home and he's gonna deal with the rest. That's mercy. That's the mercy that we are entrusted to. Whether we know that or not, that is the mercy that we are entrusted to. And that is the same mercy that it seems that God is inviting us to trust, that Jesus is inviting us to trust for our brothers and sisters. That somehow, even when they slip off the wall, somehow, even when they're suspended in air, they are suspended by the mercy of God. They are held up by the mercy of God. And it's that mercy that literally heals them. Augustine talks about this in a chapter that he writes on sin. He says, God's mercy anticipates us. And it anticipates us so that it can heal us. There's something about God's mercy. There's something about the moment where we are literally embraced by God and continue to be embraced by God despite all the stuff that is unbelievably healing for us. That's what transformation looks like. And then Jesus says that when we grasp that mercy, when we believe that mercy, when we have faith in that mercy, when we trust that mercy for ourselves and we celebrate it um, within our community, that that, that is our permission. That is the way that we are able to then come alongside other people and extend mercy to them as we help them remove the specks from their eyes. What does Jesus say to our anxieties and that we place on other people? What does Jesus say to our fear when people do bad things or when people don't live up to our expectations? Jesus tells us to trust him with them. Jesus tells us to trust those people to the Father. And then Jesus wraps with this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And if the one who seeks finds... 
The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will, be, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Uh, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus tells his disciples finally to ask and seek and knock, um, which means that Jesus is actually assuming that there are legitimate fears, legitimate worries, legitimate concerns that we have throughout life. So notice what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not telling his disciples not to deal with the challenges that they face in life. Jesus is not telling his disciples that people don't need to be held accountable, nor is Jesus trivializing what they're feeling or facing, nor is Jesus condemning them for being concerned about those things. Rather, Jesus is critiquing an unbelievably small view of God an unbelievably small view of God. A bad eye is ultimately one that narrows our scope so tiny that we can only see a tiny part of God. Um, We can't take in the full picture of who God is. Um, And Jesus is reminding them that 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 diminished view of God will shred them in the moments that matter the most. John Calvin says it um, a different way um, and actually a, a really beautiful way for someone who is known for being really Pessimistic. I'll say pessimistic. (laughs) Uh, He says uh, in a sermon in 1516 in front of his own church, he says, for if we were persuaded that God watches over us, that our lives are precious to him and that he cares for our lives and protects our lives, it's certain that we would not experience such anxiety. We will definitely feel the dangers around us and fear them, and there are plenty of reasons for that everywhere. But the man of faith, man of belief, the man of trust, Although he is besieged by a hundred deaths, he nonetheless finds his rest in God. Why? Because he knows that God wants to protect and preserve him. That sounds great on paper. Sounds great in a sermon. Sounds great coming from a theologian, albeit a theologian who um, was a refugee who couldn't go back home after the Reformation, who um, buried an infant child, buried his wife prematurely, and himself um, was unbelievably sickly until he died at an early age of 54. Um, nonetheless, it sounds really great when you hear it, and yet I don't know that we always believe that. Um, and if I'm honest, I don't know that I have always believed that, um, that God always wants to protect us and wants to preserve us. Um, and recently, I was actually sitting with a friend, and I recognized that same struggle within him to believe those words as well. Um, we, I hadn't seen this friend in about, gosh, like maybe nine or 10 months. And we decided recently, we were like texting. We're like, oh yeah, we should get together. We should catch up. And uh, so we decided to go out for um, warm milk um, from Kentucky. And, <laughs> and so we're hanging out and we're, we're drinking warm milk and um, we're, you know, catching up on like how's life and how's work and how's the new project and all that. And eventually I asked like how he's doing outside of work and, um, <clears throat> He begins to to share that there's just a couple of things that have just not been going the way that he wanted, uh, not been going the way that he planned. And um, out of that, like, wrestling over the last several months, like, he'd he'd kind of come to the place of um, thinking that, like, like, typically, it must be the case that, like, God... God's no is what we should actually count on um, rather than God's yes. So like God is, most of the time, God is saying no to us um, unless, unless he's saying yes to us. We should always assume that God is saying no to us. And I was listening to him and I'm going, I, that can't be what I'm hearing. Maybe it's just like loud in here. Like, could you repeat that? And he does. And he says the exact same thing that, that like he firmly believes at this point in his life uh, that God is always saying no, unless in the rare occasions he's saying yes. And um, 
because we were like just such really good friends, um, because, I don't know, maybe it was a second glass of warm milk, I kind of just like really emphatically thought, like, how, how do you get out of bed thinking that? Like, I, like, that can't, my gosh, like I would be hiding under my bed if I thought God was, his permanent posture toward me was no. God's permanent posture toward us is no. That would crush anyone. But then, as my friend continued to talk, he said that that's, I mean, these are his actual words, that this is what he'd come to believe because it was, it was his way of, of not throwing all of his disappointment onto God. Because over the course of his life, he had experienced some things, some really hard things that no one should have to experience. He had experienced a number of things, and he had a number of like desires and maybe even needs that had gone unmet. And he could fathom that God was good, but he was having a hard time squaring the idea that a good God was good to him personally. And so rather than sit there in the mental gymnastics of trying to hold those things together, he just concluded that God is always saying no, unless in the rare occasion he's saying yes. It is not a given that just because the church has taught for centuries that God is good, that we believe that. And it is not a given that we believe that for ourselves. It is not a given that the people in our lives believe that. Um, I was stunned because he and I have had a million and one theological conversations. We know this stuff, right? Like intellectually, like we know this stuff. Um, and yet I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about instances in my own life where I also didn't believe that God was good for me or to me. And so I didn't really have anything insightful to say. I just kind of sat there, you know, staring at my milk and, and like listening to him. And then finally, I just kind of came back to this verse um, in Matthew 7. I like whipped out my cell phone and like read it out loud and we talked about it a little bit more. But um, Jesus says to his disciples that if you who are literally stumbling in the dark, like stumbling in the dark, inconsistent in being good, inconsistent at goodness, know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask you, how much more does your father, who is perfectly good, completely good, give good gifts to you? And so at some point, it's just our conversation basically landed on God doesn't need us to absolve him. Um, I don't know what the answer is to that question, but God doesn't need us. What he doesn't need, what the answer isn't, is us absolving God of anything. Because as it turns out, if God can speak to our fears, if he can speak to our anxieties, he can also speak to our disappointment. And that's not a teaching that we can do with people. I mean, if that's you or a person in your life, that is, a, that is something that God himself will teach you as he taught me and continues to, to teach me. I think... I think what Jesus is ultimately saying to us is that it boils down to trust, that the antidote to anxiety is trust, not because we don't have fear or anxiety or disappointments or unfulfilled desires, but because we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who loves us, and continuously devises ways, not only so that we can be brought near to him, but so that we can see that he is trustworthy that's what the faith journey is over the course of our lives. It's, it's not just us growing in the number of hymns we know. It's not just growing in the number of Bible verses we can recite over the course of our lives. It's growing in our ability to entrust ourselves to the Father. And it's Jesus who shows us the example of that. Um, in Matthew 25, we realize that this is not just a teaching for Jesus. Um, on Matthew, in Matthew 25, we find Jesus on another mountain, the Mount of Olives, and only this time, he is sobbing. The text says he's in anguish. 
um, that he's troubled and overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Um, Luke 22 says that his sweat is literally dripping from his face, like uh, from his face, like drops of blood. You might call that anxiety. I don't know. You might call it something. I don't know. But but the Son of God is fully human, and in that moment, he says to the Father, "Not my will, but Your will." That is tomorrow for Jesus. Tomorrow is the cross for Jesus. And so when Jesus says, look at the birds and, and look at the fish and, and, or look at the birds and look at the flowers and look at the, gla- at the grass, I think it's because he recognizes that tomorrow for, for him is the cross. And he's taking comfort in the sight of the fact that the Father takes care of all of creation and will take care of him too. And he trusts that. So when Jesus invites us to trust, he's not inviting us to believe something with our minds. He's asking us to follow him into the same trust that he has in the Father. I want to take a second to, uh, before I, I pray here, to just kind of share a little bit about how this passage is working within me this season. Um, I, as I mentioned before, um, I came to realize a few years ago that I did not trust God as well as I thought I did. Um, I'm a planner. Um, I usually have a plan uh, for all the things and, uh, and then s- slowly started to realize that I had to trust God with my plans. Um, and then there were some other aspects of my life in my heart that I didn't trust God with. And then over time, God started to teach me that I could trust him, um, which is, again, faith is a journey. And we learn to trust God more and more over the course of our lives. Uh, recently, um, I've been learning to trust God with um, discernment um, and with decisions. And so um, recently, a church, um, another church here in West Michigan, uh, their search committee reached out to me and asked me to consider um, applying to um, a lead pastor role at their church. Um, and I initially got their invitation and thought, that's unbelievably exciting, the role um, the church. I'd heard amazing things about this church for years from other people who had been there, people who had worked there, people who still work there. Um, and immediately, my thought my thoughts like came to like this entire group of people known as South Herbert Church. Um, I love this church so incredibly much. Um, the highlight of my week is getting to see you guys, um, not just on a Sunday morning, but also um, over coffee and meals and, and conversations as we talk about baptism for your kids. And it's, you guys are an incredible church. Um, and so I, I do genuinely love this church. I love the people I work with. Um, our staff is incredible. Like, it's not a competition, but if it were, like, South Harbor would have, like, the best staff ever. <laughs> so I did not reply immediately. And I actually didn't reply for several weeks um, because I, I couldn't actually think through the thought of even not, like, the possibility of not being here. Um, after just a lot of prayer, um, some conversations with a couple of pastors here at, at Harbor, um, really encouraging conversations with a couple of pastors here at Harbor, I um, decided to just take one little tiny step and just simply reply to them um, and just kind of see what God does with that. And so over the last several months, I've been kind of actively like taking steps and watching what God does with that, um, listening for God's voice. Um, and at this point, I am there, after a number of conversations with their search committee, their consistory, um, and a few other people in their church, I'm their final candidate 
um, for this role. Um, what that means is that there's still several other things that have to happen. Um, at West Michigan Church World, there's like several other things that need to happen. <laughs> um, I think I, I have like a meeting with a classes person who's going to check out my theology, which that'll be fun. <laughs> so um, so it, it, it's, I, at this point, I really just wanted to share that with you guys and also invite you um, into this with me. Like we value transparency here. And so I, did, I didn't want you to like find out from someone other than me. Um, I'll also just invite you into discernment with me. And that looks like prayer. Um, you have no idea how helpful your prayers will be um, and can be in a process like this. Um, not only for my own discernment, but also for um, just all of us um, here at South Harbor on staff and even for this other congregation, their search committee, their consistory, um, just the prayer, I think I joined Jesus' words, um, Lord, your will be done. Um, that's, that's what we're praying for here. Um, know that um, as I'm discerning, I am, I'm sitting between two amazing options. Um, South Harbor is an amazing church. I wasn't looking, um, and I'm still not looking to leave South Harbor. And so if there is a yes um, to this other church, if there is a yes from this other church to me, um, it is not a no to South Harbor, not for me, and certainly not from God. Um, God, God is the one who sustains His church, not any of, of us, and, and what we what we get to do here. So, so pray with us, um, and just yeah, your your grace and your kindness over the next several weeks as we figure this out. Um, and this will not be the last time you hear about this. We'll kind of come back and and kind of keep you in the loop so that um, as as things do what they do. So, thank you. Uh, would you would you pray with me one final time here? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, all of the ways that you are sustaining your creation, but also the ways that you sustain your church. Um, we thank you for the scriptures that you somehow managed to protect for centuries to make sure that we have a way to constantly learn from you, learn of you, um, learn more of who you are, not just abstractly, um, not just intellectually, um, but Lord, personally, um, that we learn because you teach us to trust ourselves to you. And um, you teach us that we can trust ourselves to you. And so thank you. Um, thank you for calling us to deeper trust. And Lord, thank you for, for showing us that you're the kind of God who can be trusted, not just with um, our lack of fear and anxiety, but with our fears, with our anxieties, with our worries, and also with our disappointment. And Lord, we trust all of that to you um, in this season. And we ask and we pray and we thank you for the ways that you'll call us forward. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.